from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The Americans don't really begin to take control of the night until the night vision era, and that's towards the end of the 20th century. Supported by flamethrower teams, uh, bazooka teams. You're really dealing with the elements every bit as much as the enemy. You know, what it's like for a uh, for an engineer to be building an airfield on some remote island. I'm Jeremy Goodman. Historian John C. McManus probably knows more about World War II than anybody you know. He's been on this show before to discuss his book about D-Day. His new book is part two of a trilogy about the Pacific theater of the war. It's called Island Infernos, the U.S. Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. McManus is the Curator's Distinguished Professor of U.S. Military History at the Missouri University of Science and Technology in Rolla. John McManus, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Great to be back. Yeah, pleased to talk to you again. Uh, So there's been as much written about World War II as about any other subject in human history. And you've contributed to that literature. Uh, You've written 14 books on military history, maybe 10 or so of those about World War II specifically. What, what what do we find so fascinating about this conflict? Well, I think it's, especially from an American perspective, it's foundational. Um, it's when the United States becomes a kind of international superpower, an economic superpower, but also domestically, uh, it's when we really start to see um, an emboldened um, civil rights movement with tremendous momentum uh, that's awakened by social forces created by the war, people moving around, going to different uh, areas of the country, race becoming kind of a national rather than just a perceived regional issue. Um, You know, that's just a a few examples, but I think if we were to to sit here and really think about it over the course of several hours, we could probably come up with, uh, with way more in the sense that we would talk about every aspect of American life and it would probably would have been affected by World War II. Mm. Um, so I think that's partially why we're, we're, we're still fascinated about it. Plus, we see its reverberations in the current events of today. And I think that's nowhere more true than in Asia and the Pacific. Is there more information that comes to light as the years go by? Do documents become unclassified? Are, are there new things we're learning about this period? Absolutely. And that's part of it, too, that's exciting from an historian standpoint, is that um, either documents or new source material of some sort becomes available that you didn't have before, whether it's declassified or just somebody who's a participant adding their perspective, uh, you know, a memoir, a new interview, whatever it might be. Um, You know, partially it's that, but also, you know, as our own history progresses nearer to our own time, we begin to ask different questions and we begin to look back at the past and see it differently and see how we're shaped by it and uh, and add a maybe a little bit different perspective too. So, you know, one of the reasons why I explored this particular topic is, of course, I think any good historian should be looking for something original. And it was just incredible to me that uh, the Army's role in the Pacific had hardly even been explored. Yeah. Well, the thing on your desk right now is... Uh Indeed, the, the Army in the Pacific. Uh, Island Infernos comes after Fire and Fortitude, which is subtitled The U.S. Army in the Pacific War, 41 to 43. Um, why the focus on the Pacific theater? Is this a piece that's been underreported in the past? 
Oh, I think it absolutely has. And I think in particular, the Army's role um, in, in the Pacific theater. Uh, there's a kind of perception that I think survives even today, among even among really well-informed people about World War II, that uh, the Marine Corps did the ground fighting in the Pacific and the Navy did everything else. And actually, the Army did the vast majority of the ground fighting and also the incredibly crucial necessary, you know, engineering and supplies and logistics and medical side, all these other aspects of the war that are, you know, I think incredibly important. Uh, and so I, I didn't really want to denigrate the Marine Corps, quite the opposite, actually. Um, what you get a sense of is just how few Marines there were. And you, I think you come away with a greater respect for, uh, for how well they fought and, and the kind of impact they had. But nonetheless, you know, there were 1.8 million American ground soldiers who served in the Pacific or Asia during World War II, and that's the third largest army this country has ever sent overseas to fight a war, and yet it's kind of relatively anonymous, at least in the historical literature. So that's what I would, that's what I had hoped to, to address in this series, and, it, and it's such a, uh, it's a story of such complexity and vast scope, and I think really fascinating human drama that it, that it takes uh, three volumes, really, to cover it in any kind of satisfactory depth. Mm. Well, you write in Island Infernos that the Pacific theater amounted to, quote, an elemental death struggle whose base nature few Americans truly grasped at the time. And you said that carries on to today. What do we not quite understand about this piece of World War II? Yeah, I think part of it is it's just hard to come face to face with that. Um, it's very disquieting. The, of course, both sides in the war fought with very little quarter aster given. Uh, and so when you look at it in that light, um, the war in Europe is really somewhat atypical compared with everything that's happened ever since. Um, the war in Europe, uh, when Germans and Americans fought, they, they tended to follow at least some loose rules of warfare. Uh, they treated each other as prisoners with some level of decency. Um, you really don't see that in the Pacific War, in which the Japanese fought with a level of barbarism that's, uh, that's really almost hard to capture in words. And the Americans that are kind of confronted with that uh, and having to kind of con confront their own moral uh, moral complexities and, and difficulties. And, and, and I think it's fair to say that all of America's military opponents ever since, from, from Korea to Vietnam to the 21st century wars, have not fought with the kind of rules of war that Americans would hope to, to, to have, and that Americans also have had to, to confront their own uh, you know, their own atrocities and their own immoralities and, and, uh, and you know, figure out, well, where do our rules end versus uh, <laughs> a kind of existential uh, situation in combat? And mm. uh, I think the Pacific War really brings us face to face with that, not to mention, too, uh, the cultural differences and, and kind of race hatred that you see on both sides as well. Mm. And John, r reading about these bloody unpleasant battles, often over remote islands, sometimes swampland. You talk about muddy hills. It, it reminds me less of stories I've heard about the European theater, and it's more how we think about World War I and the, the deadly battles of attrition to claim an extra foot of wasteland somewhere. Um, yeah. Does that jibe at all with how you think about it? Oh, I think so. And, you know, in terms of how the, the, uh, how the battles sometimes unfold, um, you know, certainly there's a, there's a lot of hit-and-run maneuver warfare. There's a lot of quick-hitting amphibious invasions. Um, you know, close air support is in a completely different place, much more complex and effective than in World War One. But when you look at, for instance, uh, the Battle of Leyte, which is a, an enormously large battle, uh, and it's where I end this book um, because it's fought 
you know, like from October 1944, roughly through the end of the year and a little bit beyond. Uh, I mean, it really is kind of trench-style warfare, uh, just in the mud, in in with very little infrastructure. Uh, you know, you're fighting in jungle and ridgelines and mountains. It's hard to keep people supplied, and you're you're really dealing with the elements every bit as much as the enemy. Um, and so that's another point I try to make in this um, in this series is the Pacific War was really a, a war against the conditions and an interspecies war. Um, you know, for instance, against mosquitoes, because malaria is such a problem and other tropical diseases, too. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> when you think about the, the human elements of this, uh, I think that uh, someone who fights on Leyte would certainly have quite a bit to say to someone who fought on the Western Front in World War One, and that they would have some similarities to share. So what did make the, the U.S. military campaign in the Pacific different uh, from previous conflicts? Yeah, in this in this one, I mean, you see amphibious operations just taken to a completely new level. You know, after World War One, in part because of the um, uh, the British and French failure to to get through the the Bosporus at uh, at Gallipoli, uh, you know, there was this idea that amphibious operations are dead; that you can't do it in modern warfare; they're doomed to failure. And of course, this was completely untrue. And obviously, the Normandy invasion had proved that. Uh, but in the Pacific. You know, you know, you're talking about one third of the world's surface uh, in ocean and island and continent. And so you can imagine um, just this, the level of, uh, of shipping that you're going to have, because, of course, I, I would never deny the, the importance of the, the Navy in the Pacific War. It's the Navy's war to some extent, but somebody had to capture the ground. But it meant that the Army was dependent upon the Navy. But the Army also, I think this is overlooked, too. Uh, creates its own little shipping fleet to, to move supplies and whatnot. And so, you know, that's completely different. And you, you see, I think medical knowledge had evolved to a completely new place. Otherwise, the the, uh, the deaths from disease would have been just completely debilitating. Um, and, and know-how about how to supply people, how to get stuff forward and amid mud and and jungle and caves and no infrastructure and you know how to how to sort of exist in this uh, sometimes wilderness uh has just completely you know made this a much more modern war than than anything we had seen in world war one because in world war one we're largely fighting a continental littoral war on a highly developed european continent uh, in, in world war ii in the pacific of course that isn't always true um, you know, we're fighting in many remote islands, too. Uh, you know, so so you can imagine just, you know, how agile this force has to be. So as I often say about the, the Army in World War II, but especially in the Pacific, um, you know, it was professional enough to, to fight this completely new war, but not so much so that it was uh, paralyzed by careerism. Hmm. I'm speaking with historian John C. McManus. He is a professor of U.S. military history at Missouri University of Science and Technology. We're talking about his new book, Island Infernos, the U.S. Army's Pacific War Odyssey, 1944. John, in, in what ways did the fighting in the Pacific during World War II point toward the military conflicts that the U.S. would be involved in in the rest of the 20th century? Uh, multiple ways. I think, that for one, <coughs> as I mentioned a moment ago, the savagery of the fighting. Um, the, the idea, for instance, that if you are a medic uh, and maybe wearing a Red Cross or something, um, you know, like painted on your helmet or whatever, that the enemy would deliberately shoot you 
and try and kill you or wound you. Um, this is considered, of course, outside the rules of warfare by Americans, but it's really how it's going to, to be um, in the Pacific and in Korea and Vietnam and forward. Um, so that's one example. Another is the importance of cultural understanding. Uh, I, I think sometimes we tend to overlook that the Pacific War um, was was not just fought in places you know denuded of human beings. I mean, you, you're you're dealing with all kinds of cultural complexities, people of different races, people of different uh, you know linguistic traditions, um, uh, religious ideas, and in order to to succeed. The Americans are going to have to figure out how they're going to work with locals in New Guinea, um, you know, in the Philippines, on Saipan, Guam, in Burma, you know. And so you start to see um, small groups of American soldiers working with local guerrillas and also helping locals, similar to what special forces teams are going to be doing in later generations. You see the importance of inter-surface cooperation. Uh, you see what happens, for instance, in my in my chapter on uh, on the Battle of Saipan in in the summer 1944. You see what happens when you have a uh, a commander who's kind of chauvinistic in his outlook toward the other services, and and how debilitating this is. So, uh, I think that. Uh, Pretty much any military professional would tell you, especially today, uh, that, that the armed forces really have to work together closely. And the other thing, working with allies, like established national allies. The last time this country fought a war uh, without major allies was the Spanish-American War in 1898. Uh, so World War II is a team effort alongside the Australians, the British, um, Indians, uh, Chinese, of course. And so you see the... the, the uh, uh, the challenges that uh, in that era of dealing with allies, and I think we, we'd all agree that this has been extremely important in all subsequent American wars and continues, war or not, uh, in the 21st century as well. And when we think about World War II as maybe kind of a hinge moment in, in warfare, uh, it's fascinating to me to think about the fact that apparently this the official end of the cavalry didn't come until until this moment. Yeah, I mean, somewhat. I mean, the cavalry comes back, uh, you know, most famously in the, in the initial period of Afghanistan, not a, like an established cavalry unit, but soldiers on horses. Um, and, and so you'll see a little bit of that, like you'll see partisans on horses, like on the Russian front in World War II. But yes, largely um, official cavalry formations go away. And the best example in the Pacific is a, a unit near and dear to my heart, the 1st Cavalry Division. Uh, which, of course, by its name would indicate, begins as horse cavalry before the war. But then these sort of proud cavalry guys are, are told, hey, horses are not going to have any place in this war against Japan. You need to become infantry. And so they have to, in a, in a sad farewell, give up their horses. And they become, they, they still call themselves cavalry, but they're basically infantry, although they're, they're organized differently. And so you really kind of see, it's quite fascinating. You see the... Uh, uh, the different cultures within the army itself, the cavalry culture, the infantry culture, the engineers, um, the National Guard units that are involved and in their kind of state heritage. Um, you know, the, the army has a lot of combat power deployed to the Pacific. Uh, so you have this kind of uh, multiplicity of, of backgrounds that I think is quite fascinating. What, what lessons did the American military learn from this part of the war? And maybe what lessons didn't they learn that, that maybe they should have? Yeah, the, you know, one of the main lessons they're learning is how to, um, how to arm and equip uh, their frontline infantry. You're starting to see as 1944 proceeds, of course, the Army is mobilizing into a, 
a really modern force capable of a lot of different kinds of uh, of combat yeah, but they're finding at the uh, you know the really the sharp end where you're taking on the Japanese and fighting them in in uh, in jungles and increasingly in caves and all that you're, you're finding that you have to have your frontline infantry um, supported by flamethrower teams uh, bazooka teams uh, you know, that the Japanese were generally going to fight to the death. Uh, even when the Americans are clearly winning, when they've outflanked them, when the Japanese are doomed. Uh, and so <clears throat> you start to see an understanding of just how much uh, firepower you're going to need right there at the at the sharp end, in part because of the terrain. Because the terrain, the heavy jungle terrain can negate your, uh, your rifle fire, your machine gun fire. So you're seeing a lot of that. A lesson that the Americans never really learned through the whole war, I would argue, is um, that mopping up, as they call it, is somewhat pointless. And so you'll have bypassed Japanese, and we'll decide we got to go in and we got to just eliminate them all to the last man or whatever. And uh, you see this, for instance, um, at a battle called Angar in uh, in the fall of 1944, and it's a kind of corollary to the more famous Battle of Peleliu, um, in which the same thing is done, in which it's like, okay, we got to root them out of every cave, we got to mop up every piece of this, and, and uh, I see that as kind of pointless. Um, I don't think they learn well enough the lessons of night fighting. Uh, they let the Japanese too often control the night, and I, I argue uh, in this and subsequent book, in a subsequent book, that, uh, you know, um, the Americans don't really begin to take control of the night until the night vision era, and that's towards the end of the 20th century. Um, but, the, but if we're pulling back the lens even more, um, I think the, the Americans learned their best lessons in terms of how to supply, how to engineer, how to build, how to transport. Uh, the Americans really become, uh, you know, really the uh, most mechanized and, and, and uh, complex and professional military uh, commanders and, and planners on the planet, I think, by the end of the war. John, you were talking earlier about how our relationship with history changes over time and the questions we ask about World War II changed. What What's different about the way you're studying this now than maybe when you started out in the field? Yeah, for me, uh, you know, I mean, I've generally been a, a combat-focused historian. Um, what's a little bit different for me in this trilogy is looking a little bit more deeply into the, into the larger human experience of, you know, what it's like for a... Uh, for an engineer to be building an airfield on some remote island, um, what it's like for the for the poor guy who has to to um, haul supplies forward in the mud and the rain and all that, what it's like for the uh, the medical people who have to try to control disease and 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 uh, and also you know quite significantly what it's like for African Americans who are part of the Pacific too but aren't really treated equally. It's the, the profound irony this whole war that we're fighting these racist regimes. But we're doing it with a segregated military force on the base of race. And we see this play out um, in, in Island Infernos in a chapter on, a, on an island called Bougainville, where the 93rd Infantry Division, an African-American division, is sent in. Uh, but they don't really have the luxury of, of being like any other unit uh, of just sort of learning their way and making mistakes and, and whatever else. It's because you've had this flashpoint. Uh, of race being a, a, a sort of hotly contested issue that any mistake that they would make, um, you know, is seized upon by their, their opponents as an example, why they won't fight, why they shouldn't fight, why they're going to be treated as second-class citizens and, and uh, buttressing Jim Crow. Um, you know, so, <clears throat> I mean, all of this, I, I think, sort of contributes to a kind of a, a larger portrait 
um, you know, of, of what the uh, what service in the Pacific is like for soldiers at that time. Uh, and so these are issues that, are, that I've been very excited to, to delve into because I, I have not always either had the time or, um, or it hasn't fit the scope of some of my earlier works that were very much like uh, single battle or combat focused. And I think the, the reader notices right away how the way you tell the story, you jump around from the point of view of soldiers on the front lines, prisoners of war, decision makers who are higher up the chain of command. Is it unusual not to center the military leadership in a wartime history like this? Um, somewhat. Now, you know, I've certainly have a lot on the on the senior commanders and that, you know, I should say that's one thing that's changed a little bit in terms of my own focus. I've gotten very interested in concepts of leadership because I think uh, that applies to, to every aspect of life, regardless of whether you're interested in things military or World War II. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I wanted to do was give a, a kind of give the reader a sense of uh, what this war is for soldiers from the private level to the general level. And so we see this dynamic playing out among the senior commanders like Douglas MacArthur, Walter Kruger, Robert Eichelberger. You know, these are like the key people in the war. Um, and so what I'd hope to do is kind of meld their perspective with those of others, including, by the way, the Japanese perspective, uh, because there's, there's tremendous amounts of uh, incredible source material of translated Japanese diaries. And so you certainly get the sense of how they're viewing things and, uh, and just how traumatic this whole war was for them. And it really what shines through for me as an historian is this kind of larger tragedy. If you look at these, uh, uh, these Japanese young men and these American young men, and they're, they're actually not all that different. Um, and they, they, they yeah. in some ways look at things quite similarly. Uh, and it's, I still view it as incredibly tragic that they you know, fought, had to fight like this. John McManus, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.